Hey, this is MJ Rodriguez, and this is Dare I Say, the podcast from Harper's Bazaar where we sit in on unfiltered conversations between the most influential women of our time. Women daring to make the difference we deserve. A note to our listeners before we start. This episode discusses themes of sexual assault and domestic violence. If you are affected by sexual assault, you are not alone. If you are in need of support or looking to better understand your rights and options when it comes to your recovery, the National Sexual Assault Hotline is available 24-7 at 1-800-656-HOPE or through their online chat system at online.rain.org. Evan Rachel Wood and Chanel Miller are known for delivering searing public testimonies of their personal experiences of sexual assault. In 2018, Evan Rachel Wood testified to Congress about her harrowing experience of violent abuse by a former partner. She did it to encourage lawmakers to implement the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights across the country. A couple of years prior, Chanel Miller had addressed the Stanford student who had sexually assaulted her in court directly. The speech ricocheted around the world after it was published on BuzzFeed. It was read more than 18 million times on the news outlet and broadcast on CNN and in Congress. Both testimonies transformed the conversation around sexual assault cases in the U.S. They shone a light on how our media and legal systems mistreat, misrepresent, and mishandle sexual assault survivors. In this episode of Dare I Say... Chanel and Evan Rachel Wood talk about double standards in the criminal justice system, about handling trauma alongside intense public scrutiny, and about the high price that comes with naming your abuser or yourself. Chanel and Evan Rachel Wood are on a quest to make the media, the law, and society a kinder and fairer place for survivors of sexual assault. They are women who dare. I think one of the scariest parts for me about coming forward with everything was a smear campaign or slander or someone trying to discredit my experience because it's very re-traumatizing when that happens. And I think because of my experience while the abuse was happening in the press was so traumatic and no one knew I was being abused, but they were calling me a whore, and they were calling me crazy, and they were calling me names before I'd even said anything. And my greatest fear was when I said something, all of that was going to repeat itself. <laughs> and I was really scared. I blamed myself because I was misbehaving, quote unquote, because I was doing things I wasn't supposed to. I was inappropriate. I was this. I was that. But none of that means that I deserved what happened to me. And so I think it's actually important to say, I'm not a perfect person. I haven't been a perfect person, but no one has been. But I know what happened to me and I'm very clear about that. I'm very clear that it wasn't my fault and I'm very still scared to talk about it, but I know that it's important because of this idea that you have to be this perfect being that's never done anything wrong for anybody to take you seriously. Yeah, I hate that. Credibility is never a given, that it seems like it has to be earned, that in order to earn it, we have to prove that we can be level-headed 
and obedient that we can maintain an even temperament, even when we have every right to be angry. For me, throughout the court process, you know, I was doing stand-up comedy to keep myself alive, but I worried that if that got back to the courtroom, they could use that against me to say, look at her experiencing joy. How can a suffering person be getting up and immersing herself in laughter? That's extremely sad to me that we have this expectation of how we must behave, that looking like a victim has its own identity. And another stunning thing is that, you know, I was able to hide this for the last four and a half years. So many of us are masters of concealing our stories. Much of the time, being a victim means appearing completely ordinary. We're so good at pretending like nothing is happening, like we can keep moving and functioning without missing a beat. I think every victim, as soon as this happens, you find ways to assign yourself blame. You can say, I was drinking, it was my clothing, I was wearing a t-shirt of his favorite band, which might have been enticing, and we string them up on a little mobile, and we sit beneath them, and we watch it, and we let it consume us and erode us, and meanwhile, we don't assign blame to the source. We keep saying or assuming that you should be reacting a certain way. Even after an assault, people think they would react differently in that situation or they don't understand why you wouldn't call somebody right away or why you wouldn't do that, you know. In my case, the statute of limitations had run on my case. I, I didn't report in time. And a lot of people are very confused by how that could possibly be. You should go to the police right away. But people just don't understand the process that you have to go through, the fear that you have to go through, the trauma that you have to work through. You know, a lot of the times after a bodily violation, victims may turn to toxic sex or drinking even more because you already feel like you've been deemed worthless or you feel like there are things inside you that you cannot tolerate and the only answer is to vanquish them or to punish yourself or to obliterate them in any way that you can. And it's infuriating that we use that behavior as further proof that this is why she deserved it. We mm -hmm. point to it and say, well, see, this is the kind of girl who this happens to, when really the root of it is the violence itself. It's not her flaws. It's not her misguided judgment. It's the violence that prompts this behavior, and we have to acknowledge that. Both Chanel and Evan Rachel Wood are committed to using their platform and privilege to fight for the rights of sexual assault survivors. Chanel's memoir was published in the fall. It advocates for more sympathetic response to cases of sexual violence. Evan Rachel Wood has just wrapped up a year-long fight to improve the sexual assault law in California. Thanks to her campaign, the state has officially extended the state's statute of limitations on domestic violence cases. Survivors now have a five-year window to report abuse to the police. This law is called the Phoenix Act, after the mythical animal that rises from the ashes of its predecessor. Consciousness is changing, and now we have to put 
that into action, I think, in prevention and education and better legislation. I, I've seen a lot of amazing conversations happen and a lot of people are fired up and a lot of people are organizing, myself included. I did not want to do any of this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted to just raise my kid and not have to do this. <laughs> but um, I, it felt involuntary. It felt like I didn't have a choice. It's, I, this thing had happened to me. It was this moment in time and I had privilege and I had power. And if I wasn't using it, then what the hell am I doing? And I think a lot of people are in that place in one way or another. So I think now we need to be having the conversations of, okay, but now what's really the problem? and Where does it stem from? And how do we stop it before it starts? And how do we create, you know, this cultural shift and this different way of thinking and the way we socialize boys and girls and like, mm. you know, where it starts? And yeah, I felt that same sort of duty to report on what was happening to me. I felt like by going through the criminal justice system, I was in the smallest percentage that even has the opportunity to see what it's like inside a courtroom. So if I have this experience, I need to really confront it and figure out how to share it. Otherwise, it's lost information. And so often victims think that they haven't done enough that they didn't wear enough clothing, that they weren't clear enough about what they wanted or didn't want, that they didn't report fast enough, that they didn't collect enough evidence, but it's always the victim who hasn't done enough. And I want to make it clear that we are doing plenty. Every time you share your story, that is so immense. It takes so much out of you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just showing up to face whatever day lay ahead of you, that's doing plenty. And it's time for everyone to listen, to step up and understand that we're all in this. Everybody knows someone who's been directly affected by this. It's not us who's not doing enough. It's society that needs to step up. I think we need to stop putting all of the responsibility on the survivor's shoulders. <laughs> yeah, we like bear everything <clears throat> yeah. all the time just mm -hmm. to, to say, you know, can you see that this matters? Mm -hmm. I talk about catcalling in the book and how, you know, how I began to question how much we're expected to tolerate, how much we're expected to absorb. You know, we're taught to sort of keep our heads down and to not be confrontational or to endanger ourselves by talking back, you know, starting that fire. And really, he's starting the fire and we're trying to speak up for ourselves. But I think so often in those situations, you would be blamed for talking back mm -hmm. or being rude or not just going on your way. And I think what's changing is that we are, you know, putting the the responsibility on them to, you know, amend themselves, to look internally at why they're doing this to us because we don't want to hear it anymore. Mm -hmm. And in a culture that teaches men to not look internally and to not ask themselves these questions, to not think about their emotions or feelings or how their behavior stems from something else, you know, it's also just giving them that language and making room for accountability. And sometimes it's, it's hard 
not to be angry and not want to shame and not want to do things, you know, but again, I think it's showing them that way into themselves, giving them a language, teaching them how to ask themselves those questions and how they can change and saying, I don't think you're a monster, but I think you need to go inward a bit. And I don't think you've been taught how to do that. Yeah. And that's sad. That's a tragedy in itself, you know, and we bear, you know, a lot of women bear the brunt of that and it's our responsibility to fix. And that's why I really try to advocate for prevention. These things are instilled at you in such a young age and they're, the older you get, the harder they are to undo, you know, and there's all the stigma around therapy and there's all the stigma around all these ways to get help, you know, and I think a lot of that needs to change. Mm -hmm. The Phoenix Act deliberately was designed to improve rights for domestic abuse survivors instead of pushing for harsher punishments for perpetrators. Its focus is on empowering survivors, including those from communities that don't trust police or law enforcement. The act was signed into law in early October. While going through the process of speaking to people behind the scenes who create laws and whose job is to make sure everything's fair and to think of both sides. The problem I kept coming up against every time I was trying to advocate for victims, because a lot of people are there advocating for abusers, and abusers are not there advocating for themselves. And there is a reason, is we don't want to send people to jail because the system is really clogged, and there's a lot of systematic racism, and there's a lot of unfair drug charges, and there are so many cases of abuse that if we were to let them all in, it would flood. And so we play down things like domestic violence and rape and things like that because it's so rampant that they don't want people to know what a problem it is because they don't want to send people to jail. And so they put every hurdle in front of you, including discrediting you, to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I think one of the weapons they have is, well, but look at this bright future, and we don't want to ruin that. And that's also because there's not a lot of rehabilitation. There's not, you know, sometimes people go to prison, they come out worse. You know, there's so many issues that... That's what I just kept noticing was, oh, you actually have no incentive to send people to jail and, and for people to be accountable. And because it, it's easier to just let victims suffer in silence than to have to deal with the actual problem, which is so much bigger. And there's a lot of good laws that can't be passed because they will target minorities with them. So I had a lot of ideas of ways to strengthen the laws and we would get feedback of this is great, but we can't pass this. And I'd say, why? It's common sense. And they'd say, yeah, but some people will use that the wrong way. And so we have to hold progress back so that minorities aren't targeted. Things like three strike rules, things like that, um, creating a system like that for abuse, can't do it. Can't do it because it will, they will just use that against minorities. Things, things of that nature, because the three strike rule is already used against minorities. Another reason why I advocated for a longer time for victims to report is there's also communities that do not want swift action from law enforcement. They're afraid of law enforcement, so they're less likely to call the police or to report. Um, there's a lot of communities where, you know, there's a culture of silence that a lot of people are born into because they don't, they don't trust law enforcement. And so there's multiple reasons why people need more time. Mm -hmm. People of color are often demonized or deemed as dangerous, where 
as in my case, my perpetrator was very quickly humanized. He was never labeled as a criminal. He was labeled as a young person who had simply lost his way, but this didn't define him. This shouldn't realign the rest of his life. They treated it like this is a temporary lapse in judgment. This is a quick deviation from his behavior, but at the end of the day, he remains a model citizen were it not for his one-time mistake. And that, to me, is the difference, that sort of empathy that's extended toward him. And not usually to the victims. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. <laughs> and money has a lot to do with it as well. If you have a lot of money, you can get away with a lot, you know, even bail. It's like it's set up for rich people. Violence and discrimination against women and girls are rooted in a history of male domination. That history continues to shape the way we socialize children of all genders. Call to Men is an organization that does a lot of really great work with men. And, you know, part of the way we socialize, or and this is just coming from the men that I've, I've spoken to, you know, they were shamed if they didn't act a certain way around their male peers, you know, away from women. Um, and I think that behavior is just as important as if you see, see something bad happening to a woman and you want to step in and save the day. It's like, that's obviously amazing and great. You also need to do it behind closed doors when there's no women present. Maybe we shouldn't talk this way. It seems a little offensive. No? Anybody? I guess somebody's got to be the one to kind of start breaking those patterns. And and we also need to start framing this as a a men's problem as well, and not in in the way that they're the bad guys, but in a way that nobody is born hoping to grow up to be a rapist. You know what I mean? Like something happens to a boy that turns them or makes them think that this is acceptable, and that in itself is a tragedy. And we've lost, we've lost a young boy to society or to a culture that accepts this and tells them that there's nothing they can do, that's just how they are, and that's just how men are, you know, and that they're, they're terrible, and you know, there's no real incentive there to change, I think. There is power in who gets to tell your story and how. For Chanel, revealing her identity in her book after years being anonymous as Emily Doe was a powerful act of reclamation. Meanwhile, Evan Rachel Wood did not name her abuser when she came forward with her story. She continues not to. Yeah, I get a a lot of people asking why I haven't named my abuser. Mm. There are, I could definitely get sued, um, but that's not my main fear. I don't feel safe. And this is one thing when you've been abused by somebody in a position of power, a restraining order is not gonna help you there if they have a whole network of people and they're connected to gangs or they're connected to other bad people. It doesn't really matter. Um, Even if they personally don't come after you, they might send somebody else to, or they might send somebody to hurt your family. And my abuser has threatened me multiple times, threatened my life, threatened my family's life. And when I did decide to kind of speak to a lawyer about it, and I, I, you know, thought about saying their name. Of course, I've thought about it. 
And I said, well, can I get a restraining order? And they said, well, how long ago was his last threat? And I was like, well, I don't speak to him anymore. It was the last time I saw him. It's years ago. And, you know, unless the threat's been made recently, you still can't get a restraining order. And it has to be an explicit threat. And it has to be explicit. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I've been threatened so many times, I can't even really count anymore. <laughs> like, and I, I think when there's a threat against your life, that doesn't expire. So for me, I just don't feel safe enough, which is why I, one of the reasons why I created the Phoenix Act, to give people more time so that they could have protection, because it took me so long to process everything and to get to a place where I felt even safe enough to speak about the abuse. And it's, you know, it's scary. I mean, they definitely know that I'm talking about them. I'm sure they've caught wind of it. And that's, that's a terrifying thought. But again, the reason that I really decided to go after this was because I found out that he had abused other women and that changed everything. And that did help. I think it helped me feel stronger because it wasn't just about me. It felt like, oh, I'm really, I'm not just fighting for me anymore. And that kind of changed everything. Yeah, I think, you know, you also get grouped with your abuser or your photos go up together in the headlines. And you want to be able to create that separation to not be constantly alongside him. I think what you said, you know, I could get sued, but that's not my fear. That in itself says a lot. Like, oh, I'm not worried about a multi-year lawsuit. It's Financially my, draining. Yeah, <laughs> like, which is terrible in itself. You're worried about, you know, just being able to live inside your house to pick up the package without having to look over your shoulder constantly. That's a very simple ask, but it's not something that we're always given and it infuriates me when I see people like Kavanaugh getting so angry over reputational damage. Meanwhile, we cannot get even a sliver as angry for bodily violation and that mm -hmm. continues to be the case. And reading your book, it was like a light bulb went off. You said, um, I want to name myself first. And I just thought, oh, that's it. That's exactly why I, this is, I need to name me first yeah. and my story. And part of my story is that I'm too afraid. And I forgive myself for that. And I know that's not my fault. I don't feel safe. And so, and that's the, one of the reasons I wrote the Phoenix Act. So when people ask why I haven't named my abuser, it's because I can't. And that's part of the problem. And that's what I want you to help me with. Mm -hmm. I'm asking you for help with that. So anyway, that was just, I mean, when I, you wrote that, it was so powerful. Because totally. I really haven't been able to put words to it. Yeah. Naming comes at a cost. You know, when people say, oh, she's going after him. Really? You think we go into attack mode? Do you know how terrifying... It is, do you know how much we sacrifice, how afraid we are of retaliation that we're pretty much promised from the very beginning? We are just speaking because we have to maintain our own sanity because we can't contain these stories. It's not revenge. To me, that's such a small way of thinking and it takes the center off the victim. We speak in order to breathe and we remain the protagonists of our own stories. We do not exist to be a side character in his story or his victim. We do not belong to the people who hurt us and we 
yeah, continue to own and control our own narratives and they get to, to be on the sidelines for once. <laughs> After the Phoenix Act got signed into law and it was this huge moment and we were all so happy and this whole year of work had, you know, come to a head and we did it and, and then I was left alone by myself in my house with this really strange feeling of, right, but I, it's almost as if I was naively, subconsciously expecting everything to go away once that happened. And then it was this reality check of, oh, no, no, it's all of that still happened to you, and you still have to deal with that for the rest of your life. You're still working through this. You're still going to have to pick up the pieces. And you've moved progress forward, and that's amazing. But it was this kind of, oh, right, it actually doesn't help me personally. Yeah, yeah, I think what's happening externally is on a separate timeline than what's happening internally. I felt the same way when I got the verdict. I thought, well, this solves everything. You know, what a perfect ending. And then I went home and I remember my therapist saying, well, now your healing can really begin. And I was like, what do you mean begin? I'm done. Um, Mm -hmm. But you're right. You sort of, I mean, you can finally turn and face the rest of your life and figure out, you know, how your experience will continue to play out where it will live in your life how it will continue to inform you Mm -hmm. only 230 sexual assaults out of a thousand in the u.s are reported to the police only one in five perpetrators will statistically be incarcerated chanel's attackers convictions carried a maximum sentence of 14 years in prison he was sentenced to six months He served three. There's, there are people in jail for pot for life that those cases we still haven't overturned. I mean, the thing that will really bother you is if you look at the sentencing for other crimes. (laughs) That's the part that bothers me because it feels like there's harsher punishments for nonviolent crimes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like. I think the issue too with the light sentence, I mean, it's light. He served three months for three felonies, so that in itself is light. But what bothered me more was that it had failed to calculate not only the assault, but the aftermath of the assault, which I feel like we failed to acknowledge so much of the time. The fact that it took 18 months of my life even to get to that sentencing, that we're not incorporating all the harm and emotional damage that is accumulating in your quest for justice. That's that is largely point. overlooked. Yeah. That's a really great point. That that time should be accounted for yeah. in this time. Yeah, makes total sense. I think part of the problem is we haven't found a way to measure psychological trauma. Mm-hmm. And we're terrified to define it in law um, because we can't, it's not tangible. It's not, you know, <clears throat> they'll, they'll measure with a ruler, you know, abrasions. But how do you measure what happens to your psyche, the, the scars on your psyche? Your, your mind actually changes after you've been traumatized. I still have to undo ways of thinking and thought patterns that have been drilled into my mind because of something I didn't choose. And those are the moments I get angry when I'm still left with this mental aftermath. You know, I still have to live in the same city as my abuser. I don't have protection. Sometimes I'm terrified to go outside and even get a package 
you know, I still have moments of PTSD where all the sounds in my house are loud and I, I'm convinced I hear footsteps and I'm convinced someone's coming to get me. Even though intellectually I know this is my PTSD, I still have to sit there and sweat and go through it. You know, it's something that's involuntary. And my abuse happened over a decade ago and I'm still dealing with that. And we can't measure that and we can't charge that. Um, it's not defined. And I think a lot of victims will tell you that sometimes the scars on your mind are so much worse <laughs> than the physical ones. But we, we only take into account the things we can see and measure with a ruler. Mm, I talk about it revisiting the trauma almost like an undertow, something that pulls you out into the water. And you have to constantly keep coming up for air and resurfacing. Um, but what changes is how quickly you are able to resurface each time. And even when I was writing, I thought, I have to describe the initial assault. I have to describe it again in the preliminary hearing, then the trial, then the sentencing. And I thought, how do I continue to tell the same story over and over again without making it boring, without simply repeating facts? And what I learned is that the facts remain the same, but you are changing within that story. Pay attention to how you are growing, to how you are gaining power. All those subtle shifts are happening, even though it feels like everything is repetitive, even though each time you feel like you're back at square one, you're having panic attacks again. It's okay to reimmerse yourself in it as long as you know that you are not the same person as you were the first time, that each time you're revisiting the experience, you're coming away differently and you're coming away a little more powerful than you were before because each time you resurface, you think, wow, I, I did that and I'm still here. Um, so pay attention to your power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great, great advice. I, I noticed that because um, like I still get like shaky when I talk about this stuff, but I'm really, but I feel okay, but my body still knows, you know? Um, but I think it's okay to pay attention to your body. And sometimes when I <clears throat> start to spin out, I'll read something or listen to a podcast or I'll listen to an audiobook that describes what I'm going through that will break the trauma down for me, will break down the experience. And then that calms me because I, I can put words to what I'm feeling and it makes me not spin out and feel out of control. That really helps. I think you're right that every time you tell your story, it's, it's different. I've testified a few times now for the bill and every time I think this time's gonna be easier because I've already done it once <laughs> or twice and it's always just as hard. <laughs> it's always such an intense experience, but it is always different and I do walk away with this bittersweet feeling of, I'm so sad that this is my story, but I'm mm -hmm. so proud of myself that I, I said it and I feel heard. And that was what was the most gratifying thing for me throughout the process was, I definitely had people uh, try to block us, come up against us. I've, had, I've been yelled at, I've been told that I'm fake. You know, I, you have to deal with a lot of that and a lot of naysayers and people that try to take your truth away from you. But if you are telling the truth, 
there's not a lot anybody can do to move you or to change that or to throw you off course. And the greatest thing I took away from my experience was being able to sit in a room full of people that can create change and just telling my story, like even if they voted against the bill, which they didn't, <laughs> but um, even if they did, just just knowing that people were stopping and listening to our stories, like that just meant so much. I didn't realize how much it would mean just to have somebody listen to you and to validate your experience. That's so much in itself. So I always, sometimes we have to bring a bunch of survivors together to testify and stuff. And there's always this this feeling in the room when that happens, when you all kind of gather in one place. And I think you mentioned this in your book too, of, you know, you just look at them and there's this, this knowing, you know, and yeah, you're just like, Oh, everyone has it. Everyone has a different experience, but you've kind of visited the same place. And there's always this sort of kind of amazing feeling in the air and this magic in the air. Anytime you're in the same room mm-hmm. and you might not see each other again or you might see each other in passing but you share something so intimate and so kind of profound in that moment so yeah thank you totally. so much thank you <laughs> if you are affected by sexual assault you are not alone if you're in need of support or looking to better understand your rights and options when it comes to your recovery you can contact the national sexual assault hotline It is confidential, anonymous support available 24-7 at 1-800-656-HOPE or through their online chat system at online.rain.org. This episode was produced by Steph Colburn and the team of women and gender non-conforming producers at Edit Audio. To find out more about our conversation, check out our show notes at harpersbazaar.com forward slash dare I say podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode where we sit down with Senator Gillibrand and Gretchen Carlson to talk about forced arbitration.